Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Eric. If you're new with us, I am one of the pastors here, and I will be opening the Word with you. We're studying verse by verse through the book of Colossians. This is our second message in the series. So if you're new with us, you jumped in at a good point because you will be here for the duration of this book. So last week, we looked at how Paul gave thanks for the Colossian church and for the evidences of God's grace in and amongst the Colossians. This week, we're going to look at the rest of Paul's prayer in chapter one. I want you to take notice of something as we look at this. Um, This prayer sounds really radical when you start to break it apart. He talks about the things that he prayed for, and he's saying that he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding and walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, all endurance, patience, joy, giving thanks to the Father. There is some big things. The Apostle Paul is praying big things for his church right here. He's asking God for big things. And these things sound radical. And the more that I studied through this text, the clearer it became that Paul was simply praying that the Colossians would be empowered by God's Spirit to live out the normal Christian life. So that makes me have some questions before we approach this text. What does the normal Christian life even look like? Are we called to live radically for Christ? Is that the calling for every Christian to be this radical person for Jesus? And is what people consider to be radical today really all that radical? Or have we watered down normal to such a degree that now normal seems radical in the eyes of a backslidden and carnal church. We're going to talk about and look at Paul's prayer for the church and check out what a church full of Christians committed to living out normative Christianity actually looks like. And before we get into that passage, I'd like to read a quote. You guys do understand that when you read a quote by somebody, you're not endorsing everything in all that person's literature, right? Because I I quoted this. I think it's good. I'm not saying go and buy all this guy's books. It's a quote from Watchman Nee. He says, what is the normal Christian life? We do well at the onset to ponder this question. The object of these studies is to show that the normal Christian life is something very different than the average Christian life. The Apostle Paul gives us his definition of the Christian life in Galatians 2.20. He's presenting God's normal for a Christian, which can be summarized in the Apostle's words, I live no longer, but Christ lives his life in me. So we look at our text, we're going to see that when a body of believers is committed to living out the normal Christian life together as a gospel community, rather than the average Christian life, it ends up looking pretty radical, and it stands in stark contrast to this world. So I'm going to uh, pray and jump right in. God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, Lord. I pray that your spirit Lord, would amplify these words to our hearts and that you would bring us into an adoration and worship of Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here that does not know you, that today might be the day of their salvation. 
I pray for all people who are here, Lord, that they would see Jesus Christ high and lifted up, and you've said that if the Son of Man is lifted up, you will draw all to yourself. We ask in faith that you would do exactly that. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 9, where we're going to be starting out our text, starts with, from the day that they heard, they have not ceased to pray for them. So from the day that they've heard what? This is going back to the previous paragraph that we looked at last week in verses 8 and 9. And the last thing that he was referring to was hearing about their love in the Spirit. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. It says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our faithful, beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the last thing he's referring back to in the previous paragraph is this love of the Spirit that was reported amongst them. And he received a report from a man named Epaphras who was serving and laboring amongst that church. And Epaphras' report is that they are growing in their love in the Spirit. That's what I told you last week, that Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Epaphras is reporting to Paul while he is in prison that this Colossian church that is newly planted is growing in their love in the Spirit. Love for who? It would seem as you look at verses 1 through 9 that they're growing as a church in their deeper love for Jesus. How cool is that? I mean, how neat is it for somebody to give a report about your church and the thing that they want to point out that's most evident when they look at your church is that love is abounding. I'm pretty sure that it must have been just as much of a joy for Epaphras to give this report for Paul to receive this report, and for the Colossians to hear this report. I mean, think about it. Imagine, you guys know that I go and speak at different church planting conferences and stuff like that. Imagine the next time I go to one, somebody says, give us a report of what's going on at Redeemer Tom's River and Redeemer Brick. Tell us a report of what God is doing. And then my answer being that this community is just earmarked and defined by their love in the Spirit. By the way, that's exactly how I would answer that question. That's exactly how I do answer that question when I'm presented with that. But there's so much joy in that. There's joy for me to say it. What parent is not proud of their children and be able, wanting to give a good report. And it's a joy for people, for you to hear that this is how people talk behind your back when you're not around. These are the things that Epaphras was saying behind the back of the Colossian church, that these guys are growing and defined and earmarked by their love and the spirit. It would also seem by their multiple mentions of their fruit that they're also growing in their love for one another, which we're going to parse out in a little bit. And it would appear that they are just growing in their love and adoration for all things pertaining to Jesus. This is a growing church that the Apostle Paul is writing to. Not just growing numerically, which is a good thing, by the way. Sometimes that can be either overstated or understated. Growing is not necessarily a mark of health. There are places that are growing that are not healthy, but shrinking shouldn't be a mark of health either, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone and visit churches that are just dying and dying and dying and dying, and then you hear, well, the Lord's pruning us. The Lord's pruning us. I'm like, man, the Lord's been pruning you for 25 years. 
there's only 12 of you left to prune. Like, when's he going to stop pruning? Once he finally just kills you and takes you out, maybe some repentance should be in order, and maybe he's not pruning you. Maybe you're not growing in the spirit. But these guys, they're growing numerically. They're also growing in their pursuit of Christ and their hunger to live out the normal Christian life. So they're growing in all of the important ways. Now, he doesn't just say that they're growing in love, but he says that they're growing in love in the Spirit. He adds a qualifier onto that statement. So this is not just a love that they're manufacturing on their own. Remember I talked last week about trying to squeeze out fruit, about just trying to make it come from within you if it's not the Spirit that's producing it, that you can't just will it and just say, oh, I want love. I'm just going to concentrate on loving and love's going to... It doesn't come out. That's striving. That's not in the Spirit like he's talking about here. This is not an attempt to just squeeze out a little bit of love for people. This is born of the Spirit of God that he's talking about. Their love is not merely, and I say merely because emotions are not a bad thing, but it's not merely an emotional response. It's not merely a fleeting response. This is a byproduct of their intense and deep single-minded love for Jesus Christ. And as they grow increasingly attached to that vine, they're becoming healthy branches. Healthy branches that are tended to by the vine dresser and healthy branches that are attended to in a healthy manner, so therefore producing healthy fruit, which is why he gives two allusions to healthy fruit in just the first 14 verses of this book. And in this case, the fruit is love, a love that didn't come from themselves, but came from their abiding in the person of Jesus Christ and being filled with his Holy Ghost. So one quick tangent How cool is it to be able to say to somebody, I have not ceased to pray for you. And the Colossians have a lot going for them. They have a lot setting them up to succeed as a church. They could, they have this growing love for Christ, first of all. They're in a body that compels them to live out and to grow in that love for Christ. And then they have a series of people that are committed to praying for them daily, as it says in verse 4 and again in verse 9. You have Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras, and that's just halfway through the first chapter, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it says that these people pray for them regularly. From the day that we've heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So you put that all together and they have this true, rich, genuine, orthodox, authentic gospel profession. They have deep, sound theology that's being permeated into them. They have meaningful body life. They have leaders that are proud of their people and they are giving encouraging reports about how the body's functioning. And then you add to that, they have a leadership that never ceases to pray for their people. And the result is a really solid foundation for this gospel-entrenched church to grow and bloom. I don't know if you noticed, but the result is also just a description of things that you should be able to say of every Jesus-loving, gospel-preaching, gospel-loving church. And I'm going to show you that the things that Paul prayed for should be not all that radical, but should be normative of the Christian life 
an experience. What Paul is about to share as we break down his prayer is that these things should be normal and they should just be descriptors of the normal Christian life. So I want you to check out the things that Paul prayed for. If there's any note takers, they'll be projected up behind me. They're also up on Facebook if anybody wants to uh, not have to jot them down but would like these. But there are 14 things that Paul prayed for in these five verses that we're looking at that are normative of the Christian life. First, he prays in verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I know that not everybody here is called to be a pastor or a church planter, so I want to give you an analogy that maybe would stick a little bit rather than push too hard on those analogies that might not make sense. But think about being a parent, Or think about having a friend who is struggling, seeking the will of God, and is having a hard time discerning God's will for their life. Could you think of anything more helpful to pray on behalf of that person than to ask God to fill them with a knowledge of his will? What a beautiful thing to petition God for on somebody else's behalf. And then later on in verse 9, he prays that they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's closely tied to the previous part of the prayer. But the more that you grow to discern God's will, the more that you are filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding. And the more that you are filled with spiritual wisdom and understanding, guess what? The opposite is also true. The more that you begin to be able to discern God's will. Part of the prayer is that they would know and understand God's ways But the rest of it is that they would know and understand God himself. And when you know God himself, wisdom and understanding begin to flow from that because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he prays that they would begin to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord in verse 10. And this is really unusual language. Language like this has fallen out of favor for not being gospel-centered enough in this gospel-centric movement that I'm proud to be a part of. I am proud to have, to be a part of what God is doing in the gospel-centric movement. But man, I get a little skittish how some in the gospel-centric movement sit in judgment above God's word in texts like this and treat it as if it's not gospel-centered enough. If the plain reading of scripture does not come across as gospel-centered enough, it's the interpretation that's off. It's not the scripture that's off. That's, that's for sure. It's not like we have gospel-centered texts and non-gospel-centered texts in our Bible. He is not praying that they would understand that they are worthy of God's sacrifice. We know that that can't happen. We can't be worthy of God's sacrifice. That's why grace has to be grace. If we could ever be worthy of God's sacrifice, grace would cease to be grace. But we should still be living in full view of the reality of his sacrifice. And his death on the cross should motivate and compel us to live lives of holiness that come out of gratitude for the sacrifice of our Savior. Then he prays a second part of that coin in the rest of verse 10. He prays that they would be fully pleasing to God. This one is similar to the last part of the prayer. And sometimes, I don't mean to pick on Calvinists. I have a son named Calvin. I love Reformed theology, but I'm just going to be real with you. Sometimes Calvinists can spend way too much time wallowing in their own depravity, and they end up missing different 
jewels in Scripture. I've heard it said by one prominent Calvinist preacher that why is it that we start out with our depravity and not start out with God's goodness when we start to break down the function of our theology? Paul is not asking that they would try to earn God's favor. He's praying that as those who have already received God's pleasure, that they would live with a desire to be pleasing to Christ in every respect. Then he prays in verse 10 that they would bear fruit in every good work. We went over that one last week, so I don't need to spend too much time in that. He prays that they would increase in their knowledge of God. What a great thing to pray for a young church plan as he looks out at these people that are still brand new believers. Remember, the gospel was still a new thing. The church was still a new entity. People were just starting to hear this good news taken to these primarily Gentile nations. And he's saying, Lord, let these people be biblically literate and increase in their knowledge of God. Friends, I want to push you and motivate you to be a biblically literate people. One of the things that absolutely frightens me as a pastor in 2018 is just the bottoming out of biblically, biblical literacy in the church of Jesus Christ today. I meet people with Bible college degrees and seminary degrees that can't find their way around their Bibles. And how are they supposed to lead the people if they don't know God's Word? How are they supposed to lead you into an understanding and a knowledge of God if they themselves do not know or understand God beyond anything that is just temporal and touchy-feely. Knowledge of God and growing in the knowledge of God comes directly proportionally through knowledge of growing in his word. Amen? So then he prays in verse 11 that they would be strengthened with God's power that they wouldn't be living this Christian life on their own, that it wouldn't be just them trying their best to eke out a life of holiness, but that God's power would so richly and beautifully fill them and empower them to what God is calling them to. He prays also in verse 11 that they might have endurance, and then he prays that they would have patience, and he prays that they would be a church that is full of joy. And just verse 11 alone, what a great prayer to pray for your people. Isn't that what you want to see for your church? To be a body of people that are filled with much endurance, that no matter what the enemy should throw at you, like we just sang, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, you have an endurance that does not come from yourself, and you can say, it is well with my soul, not being cast to and fro by every wind and wave. The world can do that. You don't need the Spirit to not have endurance. The Spirit gives you the ability to take a punch that people cannot have apart from the Spirit. And he prays this. He's saying, Lord, as you're developing this maturity within them, let them live maturely. Don't let every single shot take them out. Don't only just give them endurance, but give them the patient to patiently endure and fill them with joy in the process. If every single trial that you have makes you undone to the point where you are just a mean and hateful spaz, you don't need the Holy Spirit for that. You could do that apart from the Holy Ghost, I promise you. And he's praying, Lord, now that you've given them your Holy Spirit, now that you've given them this rich, authentic gospel work, 
Help them to be able to endure. Let them to do it with patience and let them be joyful in the process of it. And then he gives thanks to the Father in verse 12, who qualified them to share with the inheritance of the saints in light. And he's saying, as I look out at what God is doing and painting this grand canvas, you are a part of this canvas that the Lord himself is painting. He thanks God for delivering them from the domain of darkness in verse 13. He thanks God that they were transferred to a new kingdom, that they're no longer living for this old kingdom, that they no longer live for their own kingdom, that they're no longer living to build a kingdom, but that they have been taken and plucked out of that kingdom and they have been transferred into a new kingdom, a kingdom that is marked by light and not a kingdom marked by darkness any longer. And then he ends the prayer with thanking God that in this new kingdom, they have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So what I want to do in our remaining time in this message is look at what it would look like to pray this prayer for our church. And when I say things like this, my heart's kind of divided because I want to push you and compel you to see these realities be real, very real in your midst. When Paul prayed, he prayed with a sense of expectation. Anytime you see in the Bible, you know, sometimes people give this nonsensical statement that prayer is to align our will with the will of God. Go look at the prayer of Jesus if you really think that's all that prayer was. When they prayed, they prayed with an intense sense of expectation that the God of the universe would come and rip through the fabric of time and intervene into this world and show up and change things for his glory. So as I push you on these things a little bit, I want to look at his prayer and just say, let the reality, Lord, be that these things would be bearing fruit in Redeemer Fellowship just like they did in Colossae. So I'm just going to take those things that he prayed for and put them back in the form of a question so that you can search your heart about these things. What would it look like for a redeemer to be filled with a knowledge of God's will? For you who come here today who might be struggling, saying, Lord, what do you have for me? I've been, I've been just getting kicked and tossed around and everything, it seems like I try, I put my hand to one failure after another. What would it be, even if things were not easy, even if things didn't change to be more simplified, what would it look like if you just had the assurance that I'm in God's will in the midst of the decisions that I'm making, even if they're difficult? What would it look like for a church to be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding? What would it look like to encourage one another to truly walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord? Again, this is unusual language because we don't become worthy because of our walk. We become worthy because of Christ's walk and the fact that Jesus walked with total perfection and then he imputed that perfection onto us and he took our imperfection in a doctrine known as propitiation and he put that on himself and then he put his alien righteousness on us and then declared it completely finished. So when we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it's because Christ has already accredited a walk worthy of the Lord on your behalf, and he put his worthiness into your bank account. And now, as those who have been made worthy, declared worthy through the doctrine of justification, we are empowered to walk worthy. What would it look like to be consumed by a desire to live fully pleasing to God? 
both positionally, where you could say, because of what Christ has done, I am pleasing to God. How awesome is that? You know what? Even if you've stumbled, you ever have one of those hard weeks that's hard not because anybody did anything or because anybody was at fault, but because you were the knucklehead in your own life? You look back at all the common denominators and you say, yep, the center spoke is me on this. To be able to look at that and still be able to say, man, I am pleasing to God. How beautiful is that? But also progressively, I desire to be pleasing to God. What would it look like to bear fruit in every good work and to know that you're putting your hand to something where the Spirit has already gone ahead of you? So our good works are not just gritting it out. There's observable fruit. The fruit, there's fruit in the works themselves, but there's also fruit in the worker. If you're just doing constantly, just doing, 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 without ever stopping and taking a pulse on the heart and the fruit that's coming out of the heart, it is very possible to get to a place where you do or you're doing a lot of stuff in the name of Jesus, but do not look or smell or seem anything like him. What would it look like to just know huh, the things that I'm called to do? This is producing spiritual fruit. This is producing, as it says in Corinthians, the very fragrance of Christ. The aroma of Christ is being manifested through these works, but also through the worker as you are attached to that vine. What would it look like to increase in our knowledge of God as a church? I mean, personally, but also as a church, what would it look like to be a beachhead of biblical literacy on the Jersey Shore? What would it look like to gather for the purpose of being strengthened with God's power? Not just showing up, but showing up to be empowered by the Spirit of God as we come to worship the Father God by the means of the sacrifice of the Son of God and then going out empowered by that Spirit of God to go and tell the world that our God reigns and having power in it. Not just trying to grit it out by gritty obedience, but being empowered in that. What would it look like to be a body that pushes one another towards living a life with endurance and prayed for one another to do the same? What would it look like to be a community that is earmarked with patience? This is probably the one that grabbed me the most in my studies. Patience with that person that you think is giving you the stink eye each Sunday. I just want to tell you, because I've had this conversation enough, if you're going to come up to me and tell me that somebody gives you dirty looks on Sunday, reconsider that conversation, because I don't care, and I don't want to hear it. Go be a Christian and learn how to have that conversation yourself. That's what Matthew 18 says. And then come and talk to somebody else. Don't just circumvent it. Patience with crusty, old, out-of-date hymns that you don't think that we should be singing anymore. Patience with loud, repetitive, contemporary worship songs that you think should be place, replaced with the real music that you used to sing when you were a kid. Patience with messy little children who are acting like messy little children. Patience with generational differences that you don't understand, meaning that older folks showing patience with the entitlement generation of the millennials. Enough! Enough with that statement. Guess what? You who look down at the millennials as an entitlement generation, you were an entitled 20-year-old once too. I know Adam was. 
God said, hey, Adam, go and have any fruit in this garden, you little millennial putts. And he said, but I don't want any fruit. I'm entitled to that fruit. And you think entitlement's new? When your first parents struggled with it and got us into this mess? Or how about millennials showing patience with older people who just don't get it? How about patience with parents who don't parent like you do? How about patience with people that don't follow Jesus the way that you think that people should follow Jesus? How about patience with people that are too religious and pharisaical? How about Pharisees being a little bit more patient with people who are not religious enough in their estimation? Patience. I mean, seriously, what would it look like if just this one aspect of Paul's prayer, I could sit here and just stomp on this point all day long. What would it look like if a church just committed to this one point of Paul's prayer? This is one of my biggest prayers for the church. Like seriously, what would it look like if we committed to be patient with one another rather than to judge one another? I can't tell you how sick I am of being judged by other Christians. I face less judgment in the world than I do by people that are supposed to be my brothers and sisters that spend eternity with me. Enough. What if the church was known as, you know that sign that you see above Planet Fitness, you're entering a judgment-free zone? What if the church was known for that? You have just entered the judgment-free zone, and if you want to take judgment, get it out of here. What would it look like? I'm so sick of Christians judging one another just because they do their Christianity differently and you don't have the fruit of the spirit of patience to not judge that person. Paul warned against this really powerfully in Galatians 5, actually, in case you think I'm being too strong. He said, but if you bite and devour one another, watch that you're not consumed by one another. The church has little hope of being the counter-cultural kingdom that Jesus died for if we can't even get the fruit of the spirit of patience towards one another who share in our common redemption? What would it look like to be a community that was full of joy, like he prayed for, where evangelism is something that's really as straightforward as people being able to look at the difference of the mark of your congregation and saying they have something different and I want that? What would it look like? These people are joyful no matter what. They continue to have trials just like I do. Do you guys realize that? Because sometimes when I just see joy be abandoned, I feel like I need to remind Christians, non-Christians have the same travel trials that you do, but they don't get to do it with the hope of a Savior. They don't get to do it with the power of a Spirit. As I've said to you guys on many times before, this life is as close to heaven as the non-Christian will ever get. This life is as close to hell as the believer will ever get. How can that not pay dividends on our joy? What would it look like if we lived full view of our inheritance? What would it look like if we stood firm on the fact that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into a kingdom of his marvelous light? What would it look like to put on your shoes each morning knowing that you are leaving the house as a member of a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son, What would it look like to truly understand the depths of our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins that Paul prayed for in verse 14? So what it looks like is this. I'm going to string it all together in the last five minutes of this message. But what it looks like is a description of the normal Christian life. Paul just simply wants these people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus to live as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. 
He reminds them who they are in verses 13 and 14. He says, you are the people who have been redeemed by Jesus and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have redemption and the forgiveness of all sins. And then he prays that you would live out of the identity of that reality or the reality of that identity, if you want to flip that around. He's praying that they would be a picture of the redeemed life and a picture of kingdom living. So think about some of the radical things that Scripture says about Christians. He says that you're a new creation in 2 Corinthians, and the old creation has passed and the new has come. He says that you carry about in your body the very aroma and fragrance of Jesus. He says that you have been given peace with God and the redemption of sins. He says that if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. He says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He says that no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. And when you are tempted, you will always provide a way out. He says that you are more than a conqueror through Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you. And even just the name Christian means that you bear the name of little Jesus. Those are big claims, people. Those are big, big claims. It's not like Scripture presents two classes of Christians. Like, those are the all-in Christians, and these are just the regular other guys over there. These are the bench warmers, the pew warmers. Um, Those statements that I just read are true of every single Christian. The prayer that he went over is true of every Christian. Notice in the prayer, he doesn't stop and have, Lord, I pray for the spiritual Colossians that they would live these things out. I pray that the carnal ones would at least just show up to church twice a month. No, he doesn't pray that. He's praying these things being normative of every single Christian. This prayer should be something that we desire to see in this church and that we pray and pray with expectation. So I want to bring some practical stuff to bear as we close, and I want to share some things that we've been working on and the heart behind it. We've passed out. You might see some scattered about there, something that we're working on. We're working on membership here at the church, and we believe that being a member of a local church is biblical and that it's a calling for every Christian. But for several reasons, after the churches came together, we waited. Um, A lot of reasons. Like, this this is a messy process. There is no book of the Bible on mergers. You can't go to Merger 316 and ask the Lord, how do I do this thing that makes no sense to me? And there's some quirky things that we had to sort through since you can't just go to chapter and verse and be able to look at how to do a merger correctly. So I would just ask for grace as we unfold this in the upcoming months. But what we really tried to do is think through, what does membership even mean? Is it actually something that's biblical. And the answer that we came up with is that membership in a church should really be no more or no less than encouraging people to live a normal Christian life committed to one another in a body of believers. That membership in a local church should be the normal Christian life and that we should be called to live as a disciple in a community of disciples and to seek encouragement and accountability to live out the normal Christian life with one another. So we put together something where we're putting no law on anybody. We just want to say these things are indicative of what it means to be a Christian life. And it ended up coming out looking almost exactly line for line like Paul's prayer in Colossians. So just going through this quickly as we close, the reason that we put this together is not about, it's about process and progress, not perfection. And there's grace 
but by agreeing with a discipleship agreement, you're stating that you believe that the things that we're about to look at are normative for the Christian life and it should be normative for your Christian calling. Regular attendance and corporate gathering and participation in gospel community. Being a member of a church means taking seriously not forsake the assembly together and to be able to sit under and hearing and heeding the word of God. Commitment to grow as a follower of Jesus. Again, this is just normal Christianity. This is saying that if I am a Christian, I believe that I'm called to grow as a Christian. Living in gracious accountability, meaning I want somebody to come and speak into my life when I'm off. I'm not going to buck at it. If every single time somebody speaks into your life, you raise up your heels and kick against the goads, people are going to stop speaking into your life. Commitment to biblical church discipline. This is saying, man, I don't want to go off the rails. I know my own heart. I know that my heart, apart from living in a community, could go off the rails. Commitment to raising your families in the gospel. So it's not just personal, just you and Jesus. You're a part of a community called to live as a missionary. Participating in the sacraments and ordinances. That means if you've put your faith in Jesus and you've not been baptized, we encourage you, be baptized. Take the baptism class. Learn what it's about and come and participate communion. If you're a believer, it's not about whether you feel worthy enough. Christ died for you because you weren't worthy enough. And he put his worthiness on your account and that's what we celebrate when we take the elements. Commitment to stewardship and giving, meaning that you believe that if you're a part of a body that you're going to participate in giving as a part of the local body, committed to serving in the local body. There's no 1090 rule here, man. It's not 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. It should be 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. Committed to preserving doctrinal unity and committed to unity within the greater body. That means that if you're called to move along sometime, you're not just going to go and start trashing people on the way out the door just disappear immaturely, but you are going to uphold the unity of the body of Christ because you believe that that's important and our Savior died for such things. The pastoral heart behind this document is Hebrews 13 says that someday I'm going to stand before the living God and give an account for your souls. I take that seriously. You should take that seriously as well. The heart in the document for you guys is that we might encourage you, look back through this and say, is this really indicative of my commitment as a Christian, as part of the body of Christ? So putting it all together, I just want to read you a paragraph that I just crunched all 14 of those prayers, and that'll be our end. Paul's prayer would mean having a church that has a knowledge of and knows God's will because they're growing in wisdom from above and daily seeks to live in a way that is pleasing to Christ in every respect and that all of our good works would be led by the Spirit in producing good spiritual fruit, including a deeper knowledge of God and an intimacy leading to a powerful Spirit-filled life, helping us to walk in a way where we endure even under trial, having patience during times of uncertainty because of a high view of the sovereignty of God resulting in a deep abiding joy. We live as a counter-cultural community who stands out from the darkness in this world because we live as those who are forgiven and free and living for another kingdom. So is this radical? Yes and no. Yes, and then it's going to look a whole lot different from the world and even a whole lot different from the church. No, and that it's really just calling people to commit to being a Christian. 
Yes, and that a community that's living out true biblical Christianity together will look radical to this world. That's what it means to be transferred out of a kingdom of darkness and transformed and transferred into a kingdom of marvelous light. So the application, it's simple, but not easy. The call here is to commitment to living out the normal Christian life. The call here is to allow the Bible to define what normal Christian life is supposed to look like rather than the backslidden apostate church defining it. The call is to come together and live out the normal Christian life as a body rather than settling for the average Christian life. The call is to live in and seek out gracious accountability when we stumble and to yearn for accountability rather than running from it like most of the church of America seems to do. And when we're committed to living out the normal Christian life, guess what? It's going to look radical in the eyes of this world, which is exactly what the world needs to see out of the church because we have a radical savior. You have been loved with a radical love and we have been given a radical grace to live out the patient, good fruit bearing, joy-filled Christian life. Let me pray. God, thank you that you have given us all that we need to live out all that you've called us to. You would not call us to things otherwise. It would not be so. Lord, I pray that we would live out true, authentic, biblical community. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.